Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, run-up listeners, it's Michael Barbaro. The Daily, our new audio show that comes out at 6 a.m. every morning, is now up and running, and we want you to listen to it. So here is Friday's episode. From the New York Times, this is The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. Today, the biggest story in sports meets the biggest story in politics. And a tragic mission in Yemen reminds us that a new administration doesn't always mean a new start. It's Friday, February 3rd. Tom, Tom, do you have a message for the current president? (laughs) A positive one? I just wish everybody the best. When the Patriots star quarterback can't make it through a pregame news conference without talking about our president, it's official. Donald Trump overshadows everything, even the Super Bowl. The New England Patriots play the Atlanta Falcons on Sunday. Players and coaches would like to be focused on the game, not Trump. But this year, some of them don't really have much of a choice. I mean, I've been to six Super Bowls now, and this one clearly has the highest level of political engagement. Ken Dawson covers the NFL for the Times. He's been keeping track of all the ways that this has become Trump's Super Bowl. The day after I got here, there was a big political rally right outside the convention center. The next day was media night. The Super Bowl is the first major event to take place since the travel ban went into effect. And the Pretty sh- much every player were asked for their views on the president. Uh, Lady Gaga will be the halftime act. And, you know, she's a very prominent opponent of the president. And a couple hours before kickoff, uh, Fox, which is broadcasting it, uh, will show an interview between Bill O'Reilly and Donald Trump. On Super Bowl Sunday, 4 p.m. Eastern time, I, your humble correspondent, will interview the president. So uh, really this whole week has had a kind of political tone to it, uh, even if the players and the coaches and the NFL itself have done their best to kind of squirm free from it. So can you actually play a role, maybe a small role, but a role in all of this at Roger Goodell, this is a commissioner of the NFL, his press conference? Uh, commissioner Ken Dawson from the New York Times. I got up late in the press conference and asked him. Uh, other sports leagues have clarified the position on the uh, temporary ban on refugees from certain countries uh, from the NBA. Uh, what is the league's stance? And secondly, um, are you at all concerned that the political events on Thurling uh, are overshadowing the Super Bowl? And his answer was... Um, I can you know, I'm singularly focused on the Super Bowl right now. Uh, as I said you know, before, pretty, pretty direct. He didn't want to answer. I, I actually tried to goad him into an answer by saying that the NBA had actually come out with a very calibrated but strong uh, stance on the immigration ban to see if he would take the bait, um, but he did not. He was like, well, good for the NBA. Uh, He didn't put it that way, but yes, essentially. So why does it seem like President Trump is kind of swallowing this Super Bowl? Primarily, it's because he's friends with the owner of the Patriots, the head coach of the Patriots, and the star quarterback on the Patriots, and been very casual and very prominent in trying to uh, put his arms around that team. You don't often see that. Uh, The last time that's happened in my memory where there's been a president so actively involved is you have to go back to Nixon uh, when he embraced the Washington Redskins. (laughs) 
What exactly is the relationship between President Trump and the Patriots? Trump himself and Robert Kraft, the owner, have known each other for about 20 years. Uh, they met on a golf course in uh, Palm Beach or West Palm Beach. That sounds about right. Yes. Uh, and, and interestingly, Kraft is, is kind of a lifelong Democrat. And he uh, told me himself a couple weeks ago that he voted for, quote, the other guy, by which he means Obama. <laughs> um, so this isn't a political statement he's making. It's a personal one. And he's gone on about how Donald uh, Trump has been very loyal to him. Uh, he's certainly been up to Foxborough to watch the Patriots in the owner's suite several times. And this is all before he got into politics. What about the players on the Patriots team? Uh, interesting. So the head coach uh, has come out and said he supports Donald Trump. And Tom Brady was spotted at his locker, uh, not this past summer, but the one before, with a red hat that said, Make America Great Again. Um, nobody's quite figured out whether that was a, just a prop that Donald told him to put in his locker <laughs> or whether he actually liked the hat. Uh, nobody actually saw him actually wearing it. Um, you'll never get that out of Tom Brady. Tom Brady, great guy, great guy. Great guy, great friend of mine, great, great champion, unbelievable winner. I don't think Tom Brady sought out Donald Trump. I think he was around the owner of the team. Donald Trump was with the owner, and he met him that way. And remember, he met him many years ago. He was just a real estate guy who had a TV show at that point. So you can understand in that context how he would just have been another star rubbing shoulders, not a, um, you know, a, a politician or, or certainly not the president of the United States. So he's kind of trapped in this now, and he's trying to wiggle free of it. Uh, the other players are a lot more neutral. On media night on Monday, quite a few of them were asked about what they think of Donald Trump. And most of them being football players, uh, you know, sort of deferred, said they were only want to talk about football. A couple of players did say they had strong opinions, but they weren't going to express them before the Super Bowl. And then one player, Martellus Bennett, who's probably one of the most loquacious players on the team, was asked whether he would go to the White House if the Patriots won the Super Bowl. And he basically said no. He didn't, mm. agree, didn't agree with the man in the, in the White House. So that was about as strong a statement as you would get. So, Ken, let's talk about the music at the Super Bowl. The Schuyler sisters from Hamilton are singing America the Beautiful. And they're from the cast of Hamilton, which, of course, famously clashed with Vice President Mike Pence. during a performance that he went to. We are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us. And that sounds like a potential opportunity for protests of some kind during the live event. But it feels like the biggest wild card has got to be Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga protested outside Trump Tower as Donald Trump was declared the next president of the United States. Who definitely doesn't support Trump. I have nothing to say of him. And is going to be the big performance at halftime. And fans have been calling on her to make some kind of a political statement. And I wonder what you predict she's going to do. I was thinking about this uh, not, not long ago about what she could do. First of all, when musicians are on stage performing during the Super Bowl, they're lip syncing the songs. The only times that their mics are live, what I understand, is when they're doing the intros to the song or speaking to the audience. So she actually has in, what is it, a 12-minute performance, she has a fairly limited window right. to say anything anyway. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then you have the, the five-second delay. So there's a lot of ways that the NFL can kind of protect itself from this. Um, 
my thought is that she may not say anything, but she may give a visual clue. Hmm, what do you mean? She might have a piece of clothing or a symbol or even a tattoo that she could reveal that may say something or symbolize something. And that way she wouldn't fall afoul of FCC regulations. There wouldn't be necessarily any financial penalties. Right. Ken, thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. Okay, bye. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine to flooding in Pakistan to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercy, C-O-R-P-S dot org slash donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. He has been a disaster as a president. He will go down as one of the worst presidents in the history of our country. It is a mess. As much as Donald Trump wants to erase Barack Obama's legacy, he's discovering that presidents sometimes have to finish what their predecessors started. Trump's first national security raid, a deadly mission in Yemen, was largely planned by the Obama administration. It went horribly wrong this week, making it a rare tragedy suspended between two presidencies. The story starts at the White House over dinner, with President Trump surrounded by his national security advisors, his senior advisor Steve Bannon, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. My colleagues David Sanger and Eric Schmidt have been piecing together an account of what happened. So the dinner is only five days into President Trump's new presidency. And what's interesting about this is you would have expected this first dinner to be sort of a get-to-know-you. This is going to be the new national security team. But they had this leftover operation, which they had to go deal with, which had been put together, the whole package of the attack put together during the Obama administration. But President Obama in the end decided not to make a decision because the Pentagon needed a moonless night. And the first moonless night came after January 20th. It was going to be this past Sunday. When you say plan, what kind of a plan were they talking about at this dinner? Eric, this is more your territory. Yeah, so what had happened uh, was that Yemen and particularly the al-Qaeda branch in Yemen had posed a serious problem uh, for United States counterintelligence officials. And the problem here is that the U.S. hasn't 
had troops on the ground there for almost two years since the government that was supporting counterterrorism operations fell. So the U.S., uh, in monitoring the al-Qaeda movements in, in Yemen, detected a house in a very remote village in central Yemen that they deemed to be owned by a senior al-Qaeda official. They viewed it as kind of a headquarters. There were people coming and going. They monitored this with drones over several weeks, even months, and determined that if they could get inside this house, there would be laptop computers and cell phones and memory sticks. It would be a treasure trove of information that would allow them new insights into what is really one of the most dangerous terrorist organizations in the world right now. So, David, what was the decision made at that dinner? And then what happened? Well, the strangest thing is that you're making this decision at a dinner. Right. I mean, the normal thing to do, especially if you were a new president, is to go down in the Situation Room where you are connected That's in. That's the image with the I Pentagon. have. That's right. And where you've got your legal advisors. There were no lawyers at this dinner where you've got everybody who can describe the risk to the American troops, everybody who can describe the risk to civilians. And so in this case, the interesting element of it is that there was this informality of dealing with it at dinner. And now the critique is that because so many things went wrong in this operation and just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong, that perhaps if he had looked at more of the risks, he might have made a different decision. I'm not sure that's true. You know, sometimes you just get unlucky in these things. Let's talk about what actually went wrong. Eric, a decision is made at this table in the White House. What then happens on the ground in Yemen? So we're talking just a few days later. They're looking for this moonless night that David had talked about. And so you have elite commandos from the Navy SEAL Team 6. This is the same unit that uh, went in and killed Osama bin Laden in 2011. So they're flown to a location, uh, and because they don't want to have the enemy, the, the target of the operation, hear them, they land uh, about five miles away. Uh, again, this is a very mountainous, rugged area, so they land, uh, they're dropped off uh, by helicopter, and they have to hike in the rest of the way because they need the element of surprise. They right. want to catch these guys off guard. The trouble is that's not what happened. And this is one of the first things that went wrong. We talked to Yemeni villagers afterward. And they said that the drones overhead, and of course the Americans, what they do is they, they have these drones up all the time so that the, the bad guys don't really know when there's an operation and when it's just normal. Mm -hmm. But the villagers told me that they, um, they noticed that these drones were louder and lower than normal. So there's already something that's unusual. Second, they somehow detected from perhaps uh, you know, barking dogs or whatever else that there, was, there were people marching toward them in the middle of the night. This was supposed to be an in-and-out mission. Uh, it would just take several minutes to get inside these houses, grab the computers, cell phones, whatever, throw them in a bag and get out of there quickly. Uh, you don't want to have to be bogged down in a firefight. But that's almost immediately what they were done. They, they came under fire from all around, uh, I'm told by sources. And this very quick strike mission uh, turns into this ferocious 50-minute firefight uh, where they have to call in helicopter gunships and, and attack planes basically to help them get out of this situation. So it sounds like everything is starting to go wrong. That's right. And uh, partly this is the way from everything we hear that Donald Trump wants this to happen. He wants to have less control, devolve the decision-making further down, let the Pentagon make more of these decisions. And one of the interesting questions is whether he comes out of this experience thinking about that a little differently. And the reason that's true is because almost immediately, Michael, there were reports 
that not only do you have the tragedy of a Navy SEAL who was killed in this operation and three others wounded, but now you have, as the Pentagon acknowledged, the likelihood that civilians were killed, including children. So my sense is that the death of a Navy SEAL, especially a SEAL 6 team member, is very rare. It's rare, and President Trump uh, went up the other day when the SEAL's body was being returned to the Dover Air Force Base, and you have to think that for a new president, this has got to have been a uh, you know, humbling moment and, and a moment of real self-reflection because it's when it really settles in that the decision he made at dinner had a straight line through to that death. It's a, it's a very sobering moment because this casket will come off the back of this plane at Dover, uh, and the president will be there with military officials. The family of the fallen seal is probably there. And so it's, it's got to be something Donald Trump has never experienced, uh, anything quite like that. This is such a powerful example of, despite the fact that Donald Trump thinks that you can wipe away the legacy of your predecessor, you can really make a clean break and start new, that actually there's a lot of overlap because this operation started with the Obama administration. And I wonder if you think this is a shared tragedy between the two administrations. In any of these operations, it's a mix of the quality of your intelligence, the quality of the decision-making made in the White House, the quality of the execution, and plain old dumb luck. And it seems like most of those went wrong in this case. Right. Now, there are a lot of things that get handed off from one president to another. But when you're sending people into a combat situation, you own it. And I think the big question here is, did President Trump emerge from this with some lessons? And we don't know. Eric, David, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, you bet. I really, really appreciate it. Sure, thank you. And great story. Thank you. Bye. I'm Michael Barbaro. Thank you for a wonderful first week on The Daily. Coming up next week, we search for a boy in a photograph. I was able to speak to him briefly, and he said, well, it's God's will, whatever happens to me. I, I have faith, and I have faith that I'm going to reach America one day. This podcast is supported by The Reading Culture. Looking to spark a reading revolution in your school or community? Curious about the creators behind your favorite children's and young adult books? The Reading Culture, hosted by Jordan Lloyd Bookie, is a kid-lit podcast that goes deep with diverse authors and illustrators who are shaping the industry. They uncover everything from origin stories to book band battles, plus a curated reading challenge from each episode's celebrity guest. Join the reading culture, where reading is our passion. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.